Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All over the earth, Jerusalem, Belfast, we've had people in Beijing, we've had people in Brussels, Spain, on and on it goes. People are going around the world, wherever people in this church are going, they're putting up these stickers and they're praying that the kingdom of God would come on earth in that place as it is in heaven. And it's very exciting to see this. Baptisms, child dedications, a new site, a global campaign of prayer. And I just want to say to everyone, thank you. But then stop and say, why? Why do all this? All this money and time and energy and movement and strategy. Why are we doing this? Well, most of us know, but let me just remind us again. We are doing all of these things because it comes from an ever-growing, courageous, bold, audacious belief that Jesus actually is the hope of the world And we want to do anything we can and we want to be a church that continually takes risks so that hope can be found in any place where any person from this church steps out in the world. Does that make sense? That's why we're doing this. And so I want to take some time over this year to ground all we're doing, all the planning and the strategy and the community. I want to ground it, of course, in the great theme of this year all over the earth whose heartbeat is the idea of hope. And there's one book in the New Testament that we're going to come back to time and time again in this time and just after Christmas too because this book is all about hope. This little book of 1 Peter is called the book of hope in the New Testament. And it's written by a man who has every right to speak about hope because if there's any person in Jesus' inner circle that has a right to declare and define what hope is, it's Peter. So if you've got your Bible this morning, I want you to open for the first time together as a family the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to dive into this book. So as we keep stepping out, we are grounding ourselves in what we're trying to spread. Now, let me remind you again about Peter, the author. This man truly experienced hope. His story, when we begin to unfold it, is hope-giving, hope-inspiring, and hope-producing. See, here's the simple fact. If God could use Peter, and if God could change Peter, then we all have hope sitting in this room, because if God could do it with him, God could do it with any of us. Do you know Peter's story? Maybe you've heard it a hundred times or you've never heard it before. Peter was a fisherman on the northern shore of Galilee. He was from the backwater of his own country, which was considered the backwater of the Roman Empire. He was a nothing from a nothing country and was considered a nothing by the whole extended world. Not formally educated in any way at all. Later, in his teens or young 20s, he becomes a zealot, an insurgent against Roman rule. To some Jews, he's a hero, but to the Romans and other Jews, he's considered an extremist and a religious terrorist. And yet, this person with no education, a fisherman from nowhere, who also was involved in trying to undermine a government by violence, is personally called by Jesus himself to follow him. And then Jesus does this audacious thing by making him the leader of the 12 disciples. Now, if you read Peter's story, it's shocking. He's the first to understand and confess that Jesus actually is who he claims, this Messiah. Peter tries walking on water. 
He's one of the few at the transfiguration where Jesus is fully revealed for who he is. And when Jesus was being arrested, he so defended Jesus, he took out a knife and cut a man's ear off trying to protect Jesus. Jesus told him to put the knife away. He took the man's ear and healed it. That's just sort of mind-blowing there. But then, hours later... As Jesus goes to his many mock trials, Peter turns around and no longer defends Jesus, but curses Jesus, blasphemes God, disowns Jesus, and rejects Jesus completely. Peter and Judas actually were walking on the exact same path, but the fundamental difference between Judas and Peter is hope. Jesus, after he physically is restored or resurrected from the dead, he comes to Peter and he restores him fully. He makes Peter the primary leader of this movement called Christianity, the new church. Peter preached the very first Christian message in history. He was there first and formally to include non-Jews into the church. He was set free by an angel while he was in prison and he continued preaching all the way to Rome. And that's where the story in the scriptures end. Church tradition tells us that Peter went to Rome and preached, and under Nero, during the persecutions, he was murdered. He was crucified, but before they crucified him as an old man, he requested that he would be crucified upside down because he did not think it was worthy enough for him to be crucified as Jesus had been. And so this person really dies for Christ in the middle of Rome. Now, I want you to think about this. Peter's story looms large in history. God took a nothing in the world's eyes, and he showed him love. God took a nothing in the world's eyes, and he showed him holiness. God took a nothing in the world's eyes, and showed him life. God took a nothing from nowhere, and he becomes one of the greatest, bright, shining stories of hope. And it is this Peter... With all of that mixed history that comes and writes this letter in his older age. Most believe that 1 Peter is written somewhere between 62 and 64 AD, just be, during the beginning of the persecution. Some believe it was written in the Euphrates Valleys. Other people believe Peter wrote it right from Rome itself. But no matter where he wrote it or when it was written, what's unique about Peter, 1 Peter, is this it is not written to a person, it is not written to a church. It is like a circular letter that was written to multiple churches and was sent and read by church, by church, by a church. And the one question Peter is addressing is this. How do I cope with suffering as a Christian and still keep my hope bright? Now to understand the power of 1 Peter and why we chose it this year, you need to realize the audience. Understand who got it the very first time. They were lower class people. Poor people. Many would have been slaves and did not have any right or protection at all. They already were suffering social and economic exclusion, but now they were under new attack because they had become followers of Jesus. Many had already, by the time this letter was given to them in churches, they had been ostracized and mocked and expelled from their families or even their work because they had become Christians. So during this very dark night of the soul for the young church in what we now call 
called Turkey, Peter writes a letter of hope. And he is about to remind them and us that we have a hope that is brighter than all darkness, a hope that is stronger than all denial, all torture and death itself, a hope that will outstrip all of his original audiences and all our, uh, all our sufferings in this moment. And here's how Peter begins in 1 Peter 1.1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... To the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Now, you may read this and it doesn't seem very powerful, but this is an amazing start to this young group of churches. This one line, if you haven't caught it yet, is hope giving and hope generating and hope sustaining. To you, he writes, to you who are on the outskirts of society, to you who are rejected and looked down upon, not only because of your economic standing, but to you also who've lost family or suffered because you've become a Christian. To all of you, if you are Jews, that have been ostracized because like me, you have rightly believed that Jesus actually is the Messiah and the King of the Jews. To all of you scattered over this whole region and you don't even know each other, on behalf of Jesus himself, I remind you, I declare over you your true identity. To you, the elect of God, to you that have received God's grace, to you that God himself has chosen, though the world says you are nothing, he says you are everything. That is who you are, no matter what you are facing. You are chosen by the living God of heaven and earth. Peter says, your story is my story, and my story is your story. Peter says, I wasn't looking for the Messiah in the formal sense, and I wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus walked into my life, and walked into my violence, and walked into my fishing industry, and he looked at me as a broken man, and he said, you, Peter, you, Simon, you come and you follow me. He walked into my life. He called me. He saved me. And as he did it with me, so now he is doing it with you. And he says, you know what? Not only are we, our identity rooted in our calling, here's the truth. Let me remind you of your true home. See, we are exiles here. We are resident aliens. We are temporary residents. We are sojourners and pilgrims. We are foreigners. We belong to another place. The church is made up of people living not in their home country. We do not have a passport to this world. This is not our native land. The heavenly city that is yet to come. The new heavens and the new earth. The restored created order. That is your true home, he says, right in this verse. And do not Forget it for a moment. He says to you, verse 2, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Paul, Peter starts with this conversation and he uses a very strong word. The word foreknowledge. This word would be so comforting and hope generating and hope giving to those getting this letter for the first time. That is why Peter chooses this word. The word does not mean God just knew ahead of time who would want him. The word foreknowledge means God is the active one, the effective one, and the determinative one. God steps in and meets you. A personal relationship with God always starts with, originates with God. 
God. Salvation never starts with human beings reaching out to a distant or wholly separated God. But God, who is a good father, he chooses to relate to us. He chooses to know us. He chooses not just to give us the idea of him or introduce him. He actually shows up in our life. And this is such living hope. And notice again the audience getting this. God has chosen the unexpected and the nobodies and the nothings in that society and he has decided that they will be the apple of his eye. God does not just step in and choose though. He does more. It says here that God gives his spirit and sanctifies them. These slaves and lower class people, Peter himself a nothing. It says this, that God himself sends God's spirit into broken hearts and sanctifies, makes them holy, separated, set apart, given for mission. And the promise over a lifetime is this, that when the spirit of the living God moves into a broken, broken life, God's spirit over time will produce a holiness in you that is unexpected and you will become more like Jesus. He says that God the Father called and foreknew and elected these people and gave them hope and he gave them the very same spirit that was upon Jesus Christ. But it's not just calling, there's more. Then he says, and remember that Jesus himself, the greater Moses, the greater sacrifice, sealed this covenant of love, this, this forever love in us, over us, and through us when he sprinkled his blood and covered our sin. Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter says to them, is the eternal sign of God's love for you. But do you see it? There's the await moment. Don't move so quickly Why did God in all of his fullness, the great holy one God, the Trinity, do all this? So we could obey. The full description of God himself. The full description of God's work in your life, my life, in this audience's life. Salvation, the whole story of how Peter became a Christian, and if you are one, how you became a Christian, is called and leading us to one place. Holiness and a holy life. A life that is marked by joyful, hope-saturated, and filled obedience. See, that is what holiness is all about and why it is so important. Holiness over a lifetime is a living sign that you actually are saved. The Father calls you, Peter says, and the Spirit lives in you, and the Son made you clean by his work, and God, one God, makes you his own people. So, of course, then Peter says to his original crew, look, grace, undeserved mercy, and peace, shalom, a restored relationship between you and God in abundance. What words for a persecuted and sidelined people in the most powerful empire in history. And then Peter breaks out in praise. He roams it. He breaks on out. He says, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Peter says, look, I am overwhelmed and I am shocked by and I am consumed by the work of God that is more powerful than my status. It is more powerful than my economic reality. It is stronger than my family or friends. Good or bad statements declared over my life. It is stronger than persecution, stronger than my past sin. It is stronger than my mistakes. Praise God, he says, I am thankful and I bless God and I give thanks to God for my new birth, for being born again, for I am born 
born from above, and my status before God, who is eternal, has changed. So I have hope. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. There it is. There's the phrase. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we've discovered this before. That word mercy is the word love or kindness. In the Old Testament, it's the word hesed. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It is the word or idea based in marriage. It is a covenantal word. God who is always faithful to his vows. God who is always present has this type of relationship with you. And how do you know that God is hesed? How do you know that God is love? Because you know Jesus by his birth and by his ministry and and by his life, and by his death, and by his resurrection. It has all been validated by this resurrection action, and we are in Christ, so we are alive. Peter says, you think about it. Has God ever not been merciful, faithful, kind, hesed? Has God ever broken his wedding vows with you, even once? In your total helplessness, despite our mutual sin, he loved us. He said, may the true God, the only guide, God, be kind to you, not out of duty, but out of mercy, not out of obligation, but out of undeserved love. This love is not required by law. It springs from God himself, for he is love. God is a faithful, covenantal partner that never leaves you, never cheats on you, never has an affair on you. He never overreacts. He's never passive-aggressive. Our God is hesed. Our God is love, and Jesus has exclusively and fully demonstrated who God is to us. This is how he begins. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God's work, his new birth, has given me one thing, you one thing, a living hope. An ongoing hope, a hope that actually spreads and extends and seeps into our past and actually dominates our future and controls our present. Jesus is alive. We are in Jesus, so we are alive, so we have living hope. I was sharing a few weeks ago, when you understand the power of this back to its audience, you see why it's so scandalous. During the time of Peter's writing in the Roman Empire, Greco-Roman thought thought. Uh, taught regularly in schools that hope was, a vir- was not a virtue but a vice. Homer and Plato, as I've jokingly said, like the Old and New Testament of, the, of that movement, used to say that death had the final say. Physical resurrection is an illusion and a joke. There is no coming back and hope actually is a vice. So live all you can in this life for the next one is done. Judaism at the time believed in hope, but they thought it was a future event. But when Jesus rose from the dead, Christians began to declare that actually hope was now found, a living hope, right in the middle of this. And it was contradicting all of what Rome and all the great Greek thinkers thought and also was redefining what Judaism had taught. And as it happened then, so it happens even today. As I quoted a few weeks ago, Eastern religions have no hope with their endless night 
nightmare of reincarnations. Existentialists see future as absurd, and atheistic evolutionists neither have hope or comfort. But we as Christians rejoice in the living hope because of the work of God through Jesus Christ. Can anyone say amen to that? Like this is the power. So let me just preach for a moment. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, right? When death couldn't hold him any longer, when Satan's plans were foiled, when sin was finally overcome, when the grave clothes were laid to a side, we move from longing to concrete knowing. We move from chance to informed trust. We move from wishful thinking to knowing expectation. Jesus is victor. Jesus is alive. Jesus is hope. And we have living hope because we are found in Jesus. That is the message of Peter to the original church. Our hope is found because our past is covered, our future is secure, and Jesus is with us now. See, Peter, in three verses, is saying this. You may suffer in this life terribly. Actually, you may have no future, according to world standards, but there is so much more happening in you and so much more to come. You must have your eyes focused concretely and fully upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This new birth, he says, and this living hope that makes no sense to the world, verse 4, is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What Jesus has done in your life cannot rot. It cannot decay. It is pure and permanent, undefiled. It is morally and religiously fulfilling, and it is unfading. Unlike flowers that you buy and die, unlike clothing that gets old after you wash it time and time again. Trying to keep up with fashion is impossible because it keeps changing. But what Jesus has done in you never gets old, never gets broken, never fades, and never passes away. It is a permanent thing given to you out of the love of God. And he says that this inheritance is actually kept like a bank. It is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, I love this. Peter says that God has initiated this in your life and this living hope which God has given is totally secure. God himself, this verse says, guards your faith. Jesus is your personal bodyguard. Have you thought about that? Jesus is your personal, God himself is your bodyguard over the faith he has given you. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And, and Peter uses this image of a castle or of a fortress or a military encampment. And what's being said here, the image is this, that you, I, we as Christians are literally inside the, capa, inside the castle and God himself, his very eternal power is holding your salvation, your forgiveness, your physical resurrection, and your hope. And so in other words, he's saying nothing can steal your living hope because you didn't start it, you didn't ask for it, it was given to you, you've been brought from death to life, and God himself is holding it in heaven for you and no matter how much you struggle he has the final say over your eternal destiny he says this is your hope and you are being held it says until Jesus' return that is the day that all of us cannot wait for the day when Jesus returns when rest is finally going to come to a weary world the day when finally our faith will become sight and we will know and know that we know it was worth it because when we see Jesus we will know 
we have hope. He says, you know, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. If you let that seep into your soul and it becomes the grounding of your identity, you will get a party on. You will have joy and hope. But then he's honest about part two. Though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of troubles or trials. The original audience, right? No rights, no protection. Slaves, many of them, owned by people stolen from their homes or generations before that taking place. But it's more than that. They are being persecuted for their faith. They are being attacked for being Christians. It is, in, it is unjust at its core. But this isn't just about persecution or economic standing. What Peter is saying is, if you live in this life, no matter what you have or don't have, you will face many trials. There's all sorts of them. Economic, physical, sin, the demonic, losing a job, war, sickness, Family breakdown, unmet expectations, persecution, midlife crisis. Fill in the blank from your own life, Peter says. And let me just say, I love God's word that it does not gloss over or invent superhuman Christians. It's honest about pain and the reality of our fallen world that's been marred since our decision in Eden. But Peter is reminding us that our Christian life is not just suck it up or pull up your bootstraps or clench your teeth and work harder. No. He is saying that we have the Spirit of God in us who is giving us power, a hope that makes no sense, a hope held in heaven. And since we have a living hope, we still can have joy even when we suffer. Now, this isn't happy. It's not faking it. It's not the denial of pain or suffering. But this is a hope that is deeply rooted in the idea and the belief and the knowing that Jesus came and Jesus rose and Jesus is alive and the Father called you and the Spirit is in you and he's going to restore all things. So Peter says this is the living hope given to you and held for you and within you at this moment, but you still are going to suffer all sorts of trials in this life. And then Peter writes words that completely, completely violate much of what North Americans want to hear about suffering. Peter says these words. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says these words. That God will take the crap of this life and God will take the injustice of this life and God will take the fallenness of this world and he will even redeem those things so that you know that when you are walking through the dark night of the soul, your faith is genuine and real because the hope will actually transmit beyond the pain. Peter says and uses the image of jewelry. Jewelers would take silver or gold and they'd put them in the crucible, in the fire, and they would put them almost to the point where the gold itself is destroyed. So all the impurities are burned away. And at that critical moment, the jeweler takes it back out and the gold is refined. And Peter comes along and he says, now I want you to know that our living hope is pure and right and good and strong. And though we are suffering for a while, it will actually be overcome. But God in the middle will even use the brokenness of the world to refine our faith to make us stronger. He will not initiate it, but he will use it to provide and prove genuine faith. Real hope 
is found in suffering because it's tested. And then these next words are written. If you've grown up in church, you've heard them at least once before. These are actually the words for us in our generation. Though you have not seen him, verse 8, that's Jesus. Oh, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and, glo- inexpressible and glorious joy. Unlike the first generation, like Peter, who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus, these people have never met Jesus himself, but they love him and they're committed to him and they have un- unexpressible love for him. It defies the outward circumstances. It makes no sense to the world, but they love Jesus and they believe in Jesus and they long for Jesus. It's what Jesus produced. Predicted in John 20, 29. He said, blessed are you that have seen me and believe, but blessed more are those who will believe on me and have not seen. And then Peter says these words in verse 9, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. He says, Christian, you keep your eyes right on the Christian future. Your circumstances do not own you. Christ owns you. And then Peter does this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, the Old Testament, who spoke of the grace that was yet to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ, uh, to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Now, I just, this is so important we get this for this year. Christianity is Judaism fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, had a message for each one of their generations. But the greatest message, the greatest importance in the whole Old Testament was not their rebuke or their message for their day, but their predictions that one was going to come to save the world. The prophets only had a preliminary role, and the later time, Peter says, is now all of it. Jesus' birth and his name and his teaching and his life and his suffering and his death and his ascension, all of it was pointed to from Genesis to Malachi. And notice what Peter says. This is pure scandal. What Peter utters next, you take this passage and you read this in any synagogue anywhere in the world today. Peter as a Jew stands up and he says that the spirit of God that spoke through the prophets is the spirit of who? Christ. When Isaiah was speaking and Jeremiah was speaking and when Moses was speaking, the one that was inspiring them was the spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus' voice is the voice of the Old Testament. And Peter says all of our holy faith as Jews is now culminated and is found in Jesus the Messiah. It says it was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Peter says to his original audience, catch the power of this. He's saying this to Jews and non-Jews. Peter says to his original audience and to us gathered today and you online, He says that you are more blessed than any great leader in the whole Old Testament. You are more blessed than Abraham. You are more blessed than Noah. More blessed than Moses or Samuel or Elijah or David or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Haggai. Because they spoke and prepared the world for Jesus. But you have actually met the one they prepared the world for. 
It even says that the heavenly realm, angels and archangels, are so struck in wonder. This is not metaphor. This is literal. They are so struck with wonder that they watch in absolute awe and perplexity as they see God himself, who is holy, save people and make them like himself. It's not idle curiosity. They watch the work of God. Prophets and even angels of extreme power do not experience what we as Christians enjoy and what is given. That is knowing God and seeing him face to face. Peter, writing to an audience that is in great difficulty, begins to talk about hope and roots his whole coming mini-letter in hope. And he begins to unpack what the hope is. And so let me just take a few minutes to do something with us today to prepare us for the trajectory of this year. Number one, the reason why Peter does this to his audience and why we need it is this. Peter knew from his own story. And Peter knew because of the human condition. And Peter knew because of people's own experiences that one of the greatest longings for human beings is dignity. Dignity. And what Peter begins to start saying is this, that living hope, when you meet Christ, it is dignity giving. See, your identity this morning is actually not based in your job. Many of you say amen to that, but you don't live your life like that. Your identity as a Christian is not in your job. It is not in your economic status or your health, or whatever age and stage you're in, or your education, and not even your history, good, bad, or mixed. Peter's own story of overreaction, and betrayal, and violence, and faith, and then falling, and then being forgiven, and then being used by God. See, God is a dignity-giving, hope-restoring God. Can anyone say amen to that this morning? No, really, can anyone else? This is like dignity is found when you meet Christ. And he says to a group of nothings in that time, no, I remind you, I speak and sing over you these truths. You are elected. The world didn't choose you, but the living God of heaven and earth, yes, he did. He has elected you, and he has chosen you, and he foreknew you, and he has sanctified you now, and he has covered you by his son's blood now. And you are forgiven, drenched in mercy. That is who you are. You are newly born. You have resurrection. It is guaranteed. Your faith is secure. It is personally guarded by God himself. That is how heaven sees every Christian on earth. Even God, Peter says, redeems our own sin and the sin of others and even the brokenness and crap of the world to make us more like Jesus. You're more blessed than the prophets. You're even more significant than angels as they look on in wonder and amazement. This is the living hope each Christian has, a living hope that is the foundation. It is the eternal spring that continually gives us who struggle dignity. Hope and dignity are rooted in the Father's calling and the Son's work and the Spirit's presence. Never, ever, ever let any other competing voice tell you anything else about who you are other than this. This has the final say of who you are. Living hope is dignity giving to every Christian on earth. But there's more. Living hope 
gives destiny to Christians. And I know destiny is one of those words pastors use to get an emotional charge. It simply means this. Our future is secure. Yes or no? Yes, it is. It is secure. Our living hope has told us that we're not crossing our fingers anymore. The only person that has come back from the dead, has really come back from the dead permanently, is Jesus Christ. He's revealed who God is because he is God. He's shown us what type of bodies we're going to get, and he's revealed the new heavens and the new earth. Christians, no matter where you are walking, no matter age or stage of your life, remember your dignity is held and secure, and your destiny is also secure because God has decided to give it to you because he's Hesed and he's love. But here's the last thing. Living hope should give every Christian in this room a determination that is actually beyond human capacity. I find this so interesting. Would you just, just listen to this for a moment? I find it so unbelievable that the one book that spends almost its whole time talking about suffering is where the greatest conversation about hope takes place. I find it so interesting in Paul's writing that he chooses the book of Philippians to talk about joy, and it's all about suffering. Why am I bringing this up? Let me tell you why. Suffering becomes the greatest place to display living hope. So much of the time we think as Christians that we need the right arguments and the right words to convince our world of our holy faith. And by the way, I'm all for that. We need it. But when people of any background, please hear this, see living hope in suffering, living hope as you age, living hope in injustice, living hope beyond circumstances, it is jarring and shocking to people. But that is actually what we're praying would spread all over the earth. See, Peter's realistic. Peter says, look, my life is the story of this book and so is yours. It's not a question of if suffering's coming. It's the question of when suffering is coming. And his question is, how will you as a Christian respond to the ups and downs of life? And he says that if you root yourself in the dignity that has been given and your eyes are firmly fixed on a future that transcends anything you can own or buy or accumulate here, then your witness, hear this, your witness, your evangelism, your sharing of the good news will be unbelievably profound because you will be able to point people to a hope that actually transcends all that they are facing Or as one pastor just simply said, in a post-Christian, post-modern world, which has now lost its bearings because it's generally abandoned God, such Christian spirituality is often the very key to effective evangelism. In a world, there's the line, in a world where fear is greater than the reality of joy and hope, our privilege is to live out the gospel of true shalom, wholeness in every sense of the word and point others to its source we can do it because the Lord is near and by the spirit he's turning our present circumstances into joy and peace and living hope would you stand as I just pray something for you this morning would you do that because there's lots to absorb and think as you meet in your connect groups in the next week over this but here's what I'd like just to pray today number one that These grand ideas that Peter unpacks in only 12 verses would not be ideas what would be true for you. 
And then I want to pray actually out of that great verse about loving Jesus. My great prayer for myself and for this church lately has been that this church, we as a family, would actually love Jesus more than we used to love him. And all of this is about that. So let's just pray a few things. Number one, Lord, the never-changing world, a few requests. Number one, I pray for dignity in this church. Dignity. I pray for heaven-given dignity for people across this whole church that their past or other people or the evil one would not have greater power than what the word of God declares. Chosen, elected, foreknown, sanctified, bought, loved. Lord, may this, I, I don't even know how to say this to you, Jesus. Just get it from our heads into the guts of who we are. I pray not only for dignity across our church. I pray that this idea of our destiny. Lord, again, you know, Jesus, you're looking right now. And you know all the people among us who are doubting if their salvation is real or if they're in. I pray right now that you would, you would by your word, secure it. Tell them that that fear that gnaws at them, that they do not have eternal security, it's done. Just give them freedom. And Lord, I pray for this determination across us now. That we would begin to continue to walk in a hope that makes no sense. And I pray that this verse could be real for us. That though we have not seen Jesus, Jesus, we love you. And though we have not seen him yet, we as C4 believe in him And here's the description I'm asking for, Jesus, that we would be filled with inexpressible and glorious joy as a church as we wait for Jesus. May God the Father continue to comfort you. May God the Son continue to save you. May God the Holy Spirit continue to sanctify you. And can the church say amen to that together? Amen. Let's sing to Christ. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.